Yeah, and I think Alistair's point about how there are various levels of accountability that happen with pseudonym, whatever those accounts are. Alistair, can I, should, should we start changing it? Because obviously what we're actually talking about pseudonymous writing, so we should start talking about pseudepigrapher. <laughs> no, 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 please don't do that. That would just be mean. I'm struggling enough as it is. You are listening to another episode of Mere Fidelity. My name is Matthew Lee Anderson. I'm your host for the show. Our thanks to our friends at Lexum Press for sponsoring another episode of this podcast. The Lexum Press Mere Fidelity Book of the Month. We have a new one this month, and it's a doozy. Persuasion, A Theology of Christian Mission by Michael Niebauer. I haven't read this yet, but based on the title, if there's nothing in this book about winsomeness, I'm going to be very disappointed. Uh, Niebauer proposes a theology of mission grounded in virtue and theological ethics, advocating a view of Christian mission as specific activities that develop virtue in their practitioners and move them toward the ultimate goal of partaking in the glory of God, which sounds awesome. I'm just not going to lie. This sounds like a great book. I'm very interested in persuasion. I'm looking forward to reading this one. Maybe we'll get them on the show. You can get 40% off on that at leximpress.com slash Fidelity. You can also see all the Lex Impress Mere Fidelity books of the month there and much more. Uh, shout out as well to the Merry Band of Patreon supporters, Mere Fidelity. Com. Thanks to all of you who keep us going and energize and the rest of it. All right, we're going to dive in. We've got a special guest today. Andrew Wilson has decided to uh, to join us. Andrew, it's great to have you back on the show. It's been a long time. Thank you, dude. It feels a little bit like hibernating, I, I think. And so it's like when you come out like a bear, I just want to eat all the berries. And, you know, this would be one of them. So, yeah, good to be back. I'm working through the metaphor there and trying to figure out exactly what that means, whether this is going to be a friendly episode or whether you're just going to be devouring things. There's lines in Galatians about not devouring one another. So we'll see how this goes. Um, all right. So we thought that we would take up, uh, there was an essay at New Orthodoxy, neworthodoxy.com. Our, our good friends, our hosts, our originators there. Uh, Speech Without Accountability, Reckoning with Anonymous Christian Trolls by Patrick Miller. Really good essay. Uh, he had had Amy Bird speak on Sunday morning at his church, and this was contentious for all sorts of reasons uh, uh, that I am actually not that in touch with. But lots of anonymous trolls came out and gave them a hard time. And so he wrote an essay about what anonymity on the internet means, whether or not it's permissible, the virtues, the the vices of it. So we, we've we never talked about anonymity on the internet. Um, and it's, it's interesting. I mean, we should, really should have Michael Niebauer on because one of the major questions is what role would it play in Christian mission? What are the virtues and the vices that it forms people in? Is it illicit practice for Christians to be anonymous on the internet? Now, I think there's there's different, when the internet is a general category that is too broad. There are lots of different internets, lots of different spaces within the internet. Um, so we might need to, to refine the question some, but in general, we thought we'd just take up the question of anonymity as Christians, which I think is an interesting moral question, more interesting than uh, people probably realize. Alistair, you are 
pro anonymity. I'm just gonna like div- like just draw some really bright lines. Your your position is going to be much more complicated than that. I'm sure we all know that. But in general, we're gonna start with you being the pro anonymity position. What's the defense of anonymity on the internet for Christians? Well, I am anti-anti-anonymity. And I think there's a difference to be drawn between anonymity and pseudonymity. So there are people who have identities on the internet, but it's a different... um, Those identities are built up over time. They have a reputation, etc. But we don't necessarily know who that person is in so-called real life. But yet, in many of those cases, people around that person know who that person is. So it's not entire anonymity. Most of these cases, what's at stake is a sort of obscurity. And there are forms of obscurity on the internet that don't match forms of obscurity in real life. But also, a lot of the obscurity that we enjoy in real life is not something that we have as a matter of course on the internet. So if you're walking down the street and having a conversation and people over here... They don't know your name. They don't know where you live. They don't know anything about you beyond just some snatch of conversation that they've heard. On the internet, you have a whole record of the things that you've said on social media going back a long time that almost anyone can access. Likewise, you have an identity, the place where you work, etc. All those sorts of things that you would not have if you were just having a random conversation with someone on the bus. Um, So there are forms of obscurity that we enjoy in person that we don't necessarily enjoy as a matter of course on the internet. So in some cases, what people are looking for with a measured anonymity, not complete anonymity, but a degree of anonymity, is some um, analogue to that, something similar where all the aspects of your identity, your employment, etc., isn't out there for everyone to see. And so they can discover it if they spend a bit more time around you, you can tell them. But not everything is given out to everyone immediately. And so that is not an entirely unhealthy thing. You might have friends and family who keep you accountable. Um, So I'm wary about the anti-anonymity position overreaching itself and failing to attend to just how dysfunctional the internet is on issues of anonymity and identity and the ways in which people can be trying to navigate these by a certain degree of obscurity, using pseudonyms and other things like that. So the pro-anti, or pro, uh, I'm, I'm just going to get all these <laughs> words wrong. The pro-anonymity, good Lord, the pro-anonymity position has turned into the pro-pseudonymity position. Um Here's 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 a question, Alistair, that I just don't understand. If you're worried about all of these other features, if you're worried about um, being exposed, etc., you know, not having the fullness of your identity traced to what you write on the internet, don't you have this as an option? Not writing on the internet, like isn't that isn't that like what's the What's the great good of writing on the internet that justifies pseudonymity as a practice? Why not just go all the way in? If it's important enough to say to strangers or 
if it's important enough to say to people who vaguely know your identity because they know you and so know that you are writing it pseudonymously, good heavens, it's going to be a rough show. Sorry, folks. Right. Like if they if you're writing (laughs) to people who know that, then why not just own it and say it in your with your own name in a private account? Like It just seems like there's nothing that's so important that must be said that requires pseudonymity as a means or a mode of saying it. I think many of these attempts to establish pseudonyms or I think more strictly obscurity um, for people's discourse online is about trying to capture some of the goods that we enjoy in regular conversation. So for instance, if I invite someone to my house and have a conversation with them over a meal, that's not going to be broadcast and there's not going to be a record of that held there's not going to be that's not going to be accessible to anyone um, randomly wanting to find out my opinions. There is a sense of a distinction between public and private there. Now on the internet, it's very hard to maintain that. And so if you say something on Facebook, you're expressing your position on something, it can be tied back to your employment. Your employer sees this, you might um, be brought in to talk to your boss about what you've said on the internet. Or it can be a matter of some position that you're trying to explore in conversation with people. This is not something that you want to put out there as your final position. Um, And so that difference between um, just having a a sort of sandbox type conversation and a conversation where you're speaking with office and authority or with finality, That's something that can be lost on the internet. It's very hard to navigate that. Likewise, are you speaking in a personal capacity or are you speaking in an official capacity? Many people on their Twitter accounts will have that this is not the opinion of my employer or um, a retweet doesn't mean that I agree with this. And much of what we're doing on the internet is playing about with ideas and exploring things. And the danger is that if we do not have clear distinctions between public, private, official, personal, between obscurity and publicization, all these sorts of things, we lose the capacity to have many of the best forms of speech that we have in actual person. And so what people, I think, are trying to do is recapture something like the spaces that you'd have in a cafe where you'd be sitting with your friend talking and people can overhear some of it and maybe join in under certain conditions um, or position where you might be talking in the lobby of um, some conference. You're not talking from the front stage, but yet there's a distinction between these different spaces and there's a distinction between how you're operating as an interlocutor within those spaces. In some places, you're speaking in an official capacity. Much of the stuff that I want to say online, I don't want to say in an official capacity. I don't want to say as something I'm putting lots of weight and authority behind. I don't want it to be tied to my employers. It's not their position that I'm expressing. And so, for instance, the sorts of conversations that we have here, we're having in a particular capacity. And it's important to have those sorts of discursive places and also ways of identifying ourselves within them that enable us to say things that um, are not saying that do not get tied to the full weight of identity that they could be. Yeah. So my public... Um, official, um, authoritative persona attached to all the weight of my academic learning 
I'm saying this. No, most of the time I don't want to speak like that. And so obscurity and pseudonymity is helpful. Alistair speaking ex cathedra. Um, there's distinctions there. I guess I, so I, I appreciate all that. And I think those motivations, I understand them. I share them. I also, it just seems very apparent to me that um, the internet has created different rooms, different types of spaces where different types of speech occur. And so, you know, Twitter is effectively a broadcast medium and it doesn't matter how many follower followers you have at the end of the day it's going to be a broadcast medium and like the the form of discussion that happens there and the possibility of not just a few people overhearing you right the difference between twitter and the lobby of your church is or a coffee shop is at the coffee shop three people might overhear you and chime in at the lobby of your church. Five people might come join the conversation on Twitter. You'll get 5 million who are going to pile on you. And so like inherently that reduces the um, coffee shop effect of, of Twitter. It, it necessarily constrains it. And as such, we've created alternate venues for people to have the sort of conversations that I think you're talking about. So one of the things that seemed very clear to me when Slack started to take hold as a communications channel was that all of the interesting conversations among people moved from Twitter to Slack, that, it, that they gravitated into those sorts of rooms be precisely because they do have higher walls. It's harder for people to overhear and to take things out of context and because there's a lot more trust that's had among participants in that sort of venue. And so I guess I, I, I just am not persuaded that for the types of goods, for the, the recovery of uh, the types of conversations, the, the ability to not speak ex cathedra all the time, to raise inquiry, you know, to have inquiring positions that you hold very tentatively, that those sorts of speech, you have to embrace pseudonymity to do it on the internet. One reason why I opted for an email newsletter, for instance, is because it goes into genuinely the most intimate space on the internet that we have, which is our email inboxes. And that gives me a kind of freedom to write in an unpolished, non-professional way um, and it also allows readers, I think, the freedom to respond accordingly because it has a type of informality to it that something like blogging uh, in the days of old didn't have. Um, and so I, 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 really, I really do value that informal type of speech. And I mostly work out my thoughts uh, by sending tweets or by writing newsletters. Like it's, uh, people think that I... I, I think people think I, I hold every opinion with the utmost degree of confidence. But usually, if I send a tweet, it's a kind of trial balloon. It's something that I'm thinking about that um, uh, that I haven't worked all the way through, which is why my tweets sometimes get me into real trouble and people hate them. Um, uh, not just because they hate me, though they do that too. Uh, but I, No, but I they get you in trouble because they're bad. <laughs> <laughs> Well, of course they're bad. They're half worked out thoughts, you know, or 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 they're the conclusion of my thinking without any of the reasoning that got me to that that thinking. That's that's the other sort of tweet that I send that gets me in trouble. But I guess I I just I'm not persuaded that uh, we don't have other contexts for uh, 
occasional, you know, half-formed thoughts to go out without the risk of being attached to our full persons and coming back on our employers and whatnot. So, Andrew, how many anonymous accounts do you have or pseudonymous accounts, Andrew, do you have and what are they? So this is what my mind just went to is I, I posted pseudonymously once on really? a blog. Yeah. And I don't think it's, a, I, I don't think I said anything bad at all. Actually, I didn't, I certainly didn't behave like some of the people who are trolling Alistair or Amy or you or whoever. Um, I, I was basically trying to work out, do I think, and to what extent do I think that people being pseudonymous makes is bad for them as individuals. So it's bad for the conversation. It's bad for the, but to what extent do I think it, it, it in the end makes people more likely to sin? That's what I'm wondering about. Yeah. Because I actually, the the only people I've ever had to sort of mute or block on, in my interactions on Twitter, almost all of them have been named people. They're just asinine individuals who seem to use the medium really, really badly. And they, but it's, but they're actually the pseudonymity is not the issue. They don't, I mean, I don't think any, there might be pseudonymous, actually, I can't prove that they aren't, but they are quite, seem quite happily to have a, often a face and a name and so on. And I'm assuming it's right. Um, present company accepted, of course. Um, and uh, and so at a personal level, on the receiving end, I don't think I, I have, I've received very, very little trolling anyway. Uh, well, there was one, that, that one time that I got dragged about the um, satirical post I did a few years ago. But other than that, I haven't really had it. What I so I'm thinking about it more as the user. Now, obviously, some of us at Alistair we can run a pseudonymous Twitter account for years and never say anything foolish. And in fact, it's quite a good way of making people giving people access to things he's thinking that he wouldn't put his name to. But most people don't have that level of maturity and distance. And I don't think I do. And when I posted something pseudonymous and knew that I wasn't the in trouble for what I was saying, and it wasn't a, it wasn't an inflammatory thing I said at all. I thought I could get used to that. The idea that there are no consequences that reverberate onto me from the fact that I've, I've, I've had the, almost the, the privilege of splurging and saying something I'd like to say, but without the accountability that would come from knowing that it would get back that it was me and knowing that it might be connected to my employer or my other things I've written online, in my case, and so on, and could, could actually be used to discredit me. I think that's the dangerous pseudonymity is you can say things without the responsibility or accountability that comes from knowing that were they to be extremely ill-judged. They, I, I'm immune, effectively, from any backdraft that might rightly come my way if I had, uh, not backdraft, blowback, um, if I'd just misjudged it or if I'd been rude or whatever. And I think that makes people less careful. So although in my personal experience, I haven't, I, I can't particularly see a correspondence between pseudonymity and being an ass on Twitter, I think I can see in my own soul that this would be a very tempting thing for me. And I think it would... and. I'm assuming from this story that I can't remember the guy's name in the Miro article or Amy and so on. What I've seen, I think, yeah, there's a lot of people who behave terribly undercover of pseudonymity. Not everybody, not everybody does. As, as, as an outstanding example, I've followed him for years in his, in his non-Alistair Roberts capacities. But I am still, I still suspect that the vast majority of people who use that cover will not find it enhances their... Um, godliness in public discourse and i think there is probably a healthy accountability for most people and that's what i was reflecting so what's the danger to me as someone who posts pseudonymously rather than the danger to the conversation or the internet 
Yeah, and I think Alistair's point about how there are various levels of accountability that happen with pseudonymous, whatever those accounts are. Alistair, can I just, should, should we start changing it? Because obviously what we're actually talking about pseudonymous writing, so we should start talking about pseudepigrapher. <laughs> no, 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 please don't do that. That would just be mean. I'm struggling enough as it is. The um, So, I mean, there are various levels of accountability, right? Some people in your life do know and so can hold you accountable. And I'm curious, Andrew, as the pastor of a church, this hasn't reached down and affected your internal church life at all yet. It's not like people on the internet have tried to, you know, uh, bring down your church by um, attacking it anonymously, etc. I wonder what you think of this, like, with respect to the dangers of this and the ways in which it forms people as a pastor. um, Is it the sort of thing that if you, you know, someone brought it to your attention uh, that a member of your church was engaging in this sort of conduct online or had an anonymous account, would you open up a conversation with them about the hazards? Would you go ask for access so that you could see what they're doing, et cetera? Like, like while there are various levels of accountability for people with pseudonymous accounts, uh, should those levels of accountability include religious accountability and should pastors know like if you're going to do this if you do find all of Alistair's justifications for this sort of practice uh, forceful and you take it up should your pastor be one of the people that knows your alternate identity on the internet and is able to see everything to to hold you accountable it's a very interesting question because it's not um, it's not come up um there might be that there's some very you know, widely followed Twitter account that turns out to be a member of my church in disguise and I've just never realised. But it hasn't come up. And so I'm, I'm, I'm provoked by the question. I, I think if I inverted it for a moment, I think that there would, it would certainly be good on behalf of the church member to ensure... You, what, you, what you really want is to protect me. If I'm a church member and rather than pastor in this conversation and, I, and I'm thinking there are good reasons, say I need to keep a pretty big... Chinese wall between my public speech on Twitter and my commercial or whatever identity. And I think that that's worthwhile. There's plenty of teachers who do something like that because they don't, they don't want to put their in Britain anyway. They don't want to have their identity because they're students following them and so on. So they have to be very careful about social media. So let's say you do something like that and I am active and I've got a significant following. So it's a potential uh, sole hazard for me as a believer, as a disciple. I don't, I don't want to, I don't agree. I think for me in that situation, it's very helpful for me to be held accountable, not by somebody who simply happens to be married to me. And in many marriages, the couple are not equally active online. One person's much more engaged online than the other. And that's not a very appropriate form of accountability because I could say, oh, Rachel knows what my, you know, my pseudonymous account is, but that's not going to be very helpful if she's not regularly reading what I'm saying. So you might, at that point, think the person I should seek out is somebody who's spiritually mature and has got some degree of postural concern for me but is also actively engaged on this medium. Now, so in my church, if that, that would work great if it was Twitter, but it would be of no good at all if it was Instagram, at least for me, because I'm not on it. And I'm, I would almost have to go on it if, if only to follow this person around and watch what they're doing. And so I suspect that at my level, I would want, I think that would be helpful protection for me. But as a pastor, I don't think I would feel like 
the the, an, the anonymity or pseudonymity is the issue that I need to say, and you need to be accountable about that. I think the the, the moment when you have to step towards somebody and say we need to talk about this is if it is producing, you know, sinful, ungodly, uncharitable behaviour. That's where you would get wouldn't get involved. But the challenge, of course, is I'm not sure I'd know who it was, and I might have no clue that the person was in my church in the first place. So I think the onus would have to be, and a whole context of pseudonymity is that the onus, the impetus for it, for being for accountability, has to come from the person who's writing, not the pastor. Otherwise, yeah. how on earth would I know who they were? I think that would be a very good thing for a person to do if they were regularly finding themselves posting pseudonymously and knew that it was a potential area of vulnerability, just like any temptation to sin is good to be accountable about. But I don't think I, as a pastor, have got the right to say, you need to run everything by me, let me see everything you've written or anything like that. Um, but it's a good question. It's not, I don't think it's ever come up, but now I'm wondering, are some of these anonymous accounts I've seen secretly members of King's London? <laughs> One of the things I've often wondered about is, behind all of this, the relationship between online persona and our actual sense of who we are. Um, in the past, the internet used to be a lot more anonymous. And you'd go on to particular fora or something like that and have a conversation. No one would know who you are. And there's the famous, is it New Yorker cartoon, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. And you have these two dogs in front of a computer talking to each other. And there's something about the internet and anonymity that was very much at its, at its origins. But now, with the rise of social media, there's a lot more of a temptation to see ourselves as these persona that we form online. And so the way that I understand myself very much through the mirror of social media. So I see how people react to my persona, the persona that I've crafted about myself, around myself, that I look to myself to get a sense of who I am. Um, I just find that it's a fairly dysfunctional relationship in many cases. There is a sort of mirror that social media provides for us, a sort of social mirror that shapes the way that we understand ourselves. And so I've compared this in the past to a society that never actually had mirrors. And then you bring a mirror to this society and suddenly people see themselves in their reflection and their whole sense of self is transformed because suddenly there's a level of reflexivity that I see myself as other people see me and now I become preoccupied with my appearance in this um, surface. In the same way with social media, I think it provides something of that mirror. And whereas in the past you go onto the internet, you'd be completely anonymous, there would be very little gravity to that community. Um, this varied by community. There are many fora that would become quite tight-knit. People would get to know each other. And people would get drawn into this very detached persona from the actual person. Um, but much of the time, you're just going onto a forum. You wouldn't really have much connection with the people there. They wouldn't have much gravity in your life. And so you could discuss ideas without being connected to them that much. And so there wouldn't be the same degree of um, exposure of yourself as a person to other people. And much of the problem, I think, that is with this hostile, um, vicious environment online is because we've become increasingly personally invested in our opinions and the way that we present ourselves in these online, um, as online personas. I just think that is part of the problem that we're dealing with here. And if we can sufficiently detach ourselves from the sorts of viewpoints that we articulate online, 
we can have conversations that are a lot less personal and vicious. So I've tried to do that in part just my Twitter persona for my image. It's an image of me as a kid and with a silly expression. And my um, handle is na nasty British and short. Um, I'm not wanting people to put that much weight upon this persona. If I want to speak in a more professional or official capacity, I do that elsewhere. Um, but Twitter is where I'm exploring ideas and wanting to talk with people in the conversation that's taking place. Now, much of that conversation in its more rigorous forms has migrated to places like Discord and to email discussion lists. But I've long believed that the internet needs to be, it can be a place where the theological conversation is spread out wider, where more people can participate. And there is a sense of um, not flatten, flattening out of the conversation, but an extending out of the conversation so that people who would otherwise be held at a distance from the sort of things that theologians are describing can actually listen in and participate in the, those conversations. Yeah. And I think that's a good thing that's lost if we just go into our theological corners of Discord and Slack. I think that's right, Alistair. I, th I think what you say about detaching yourself from the weight of the conversation is all right. I think one question that I have and one thing that I'm very skeptical about is our ability to detach ourselves from the weight of the conversations in those sort of spaces without detaching ourselves from those spaces on a regular basis, right? Like from my standpoint, I, I just have a default skepticism about any power user of social media who does not take at some point through the year a extended break from it. Um, I, I take breaks at both Advent and Lent. That's just the, the sort of routine that I've gotten into in the last couple of years. And what it does is it, one, diminishes use throughout the rest of the year. But two, it detaches my sense of identity, the things that I care about, the things that I value from the types of feedback that are given on the internet. And that makes everything that happens on Twitter or other platforms necessarily less important to my sense of who I am, uh, my sense of overall flourishing, et cetera. And so from my standpoint, it's just not clear to me that we can be heroes in our virtues to the extent that we would have to be to be regular, frequent users of these platforms while also maintaining the type of disconnect from uh, our identity that I think you're talking about, right? Like they're just too powerful. They're just too formative. And few of us have sufficient guardrails within our sense of selves because one of the things that time does is it binds our loves to things without us realizing it. And so time spent on Twitter, even if we're actively actively resisting it mentally in terms of its identity formation, is still going to form us. We're just not that powerful. We, we, we love the things that we give time to. And we enter feedback loops of a, a affirmation and approval with the things that we give time to. And so I, like, as a, as a part of detaching ourselves and our identities from these feedback loops, I think it's just necessary for people to detach from the feedback loops and not tweet, which is why I guess I come back to where I was at the beginning. I ju I'm just not 
like moved that for all these goods, there's not this other option there, which is just not tweeting, not being on the internet and recovering like in-person modes of engaging in conversation, uh, community, exploring these sorts of ideas in contexts that are non-digital. Like it just seems like retrieving those sorts of practices. Matt, how, how much just, let's say Twitter didn't exist. How much of this conversation would still happen? So it, that's my main social media platform, so I I don't know. But it strikes me that this isn't something that comes up on photo-based sites. And Facebook and Instagram both presumably don't do this in the same way, do they? And um, as in, is this an issue? Do you think this is a particular issue for a broadcast medium that you in which you make unnuanced short statements and can hide who you are? Or do you think this is just an endemic problem? Everyone on the internet just happens that Twitter is the one I've been on. In terms of anonymity and pseudonymity? Yeah, and pseudonymity. And uh, the, the whole conversation we're having, really, about the, the, the gap between you and the person you're projecting. Do you think that... It, and obviously, there's a, there's a projection that takes place on every social media site. But I'm just wondering if this is... If 98% of this conversation is really about one medium in particular, and if we all went off Twitter and went onto the equivalents of a Discords and Slacks, and, but even Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, whatever, we wouldn't have this problem in the same way? Or do you think that's... Am I being too optimistic? It's it's, it's not clear to me. I mean, you might be too optimistic. If everyone was in the same Discord room, it'd be Twitter. Um, The in terms of pseudonymity and anonymity, those do seem to be particular to Twitter as a platform. It's much harder to maintain pseudonymity on Instagram, uh, for instance. and it's just not the same sort of culture. They're not engaging in the same sorts of debates, et cetera. In terms of the identity formation and maintaining a sense of self and and uh, detaching oneself from the types of feedback loops that you get on social media, those seem to be the case regardless of whether it's Instagram or Facebook. Um, certainly Instagram, right, has a whole different set of problems in terms of the sense of image that people get about themselves, uh, the types of feedback they internalize based on their images. Like that's, you know, like it's, it's I think, important to remember for people like us who are predominantly Twitter users that actually Christian discourse is nothing, on Twitter relative to what it is on Instagram, right? Like if you're, if you're actually have influence within the world of Christianity, you're on Instagram and you have tons of followers, like the people on Twitter in terms of Christians are negligible compared to what's happening over there. Um, and so a lot of, a lot of the pathologies just in terms of broader social media use are probably exaggerated on a platform like Instagram in terms of people's identity. Uh, but I think anonymity, my impression is this could be wrong, but my impression is that questions of anonymity, pseudonymity are more pronounced on Twitter in part because Twitter insofar as it is air quotes, scare quotes, theological discourse. insofar as that's happening, you do have um, a lot of people who have taken it upon themselves to hold others accountable for their views that part of part of what's going on with um anonymity and pseudonymity within the christian world is an attempt to uh, police uh and to engage in fraternal correction ostensibly for views that 
influential, quote unquote, people have that are wrong or dangerous or misleading, et cetera. Um, I think one of the things that the Patrick Miller essay highlighted that I uh, thought was really valuable is the absence of fraternal correction in scripture that is anonymous, right? It seems like every, all the, the defenses of anonymity or pseudonymity that Alistair gave are about retrieving coffee shop, church lobby sort of speech, inquiry, those sorts of things. None of them came down to, we're going to hold people accountable, right? And it does seem like if you're going to engage in accountability policing, fraternal correction on the internet, you should actually use your name in part because to engage in fraternal correction is to ensure that someone's reputation is in line with the truth of who they are and in line with this, the gospel. And if you're not going to do that with your own reputation on the line, there's an inherent disconnect between what you're doing and uh, in, in terms of a practice and what you're living. And that inherent disconnect just violates the first norm for fraternal correction, which is that you have to inquire into yourself to see whether you are engaging in the, the practice that you are correcting. Um, so I just like fraternal correction, anonymous fraternal correction is a contradiction in terms from my standpoint. And partially what you have within Twitter discourses is uh, accountability keeping or, you know, uh, trying to uh, engage in a certain sort of warfare for the kingdom. I don't even know what these people call, call it or how they think about it, but that's not actually real fraternal correction where they're not actually genuinely interested in the repentance of the person on the other side. Um, because if they were, the means and the mechanisms by which they would go about it would be very different. Fraternal correction arises in a high trust context where, um, yeah, where someone comes to me and I, and I actually trust that they have my good in mind. And that's just not the sort of thing that an trolls can do on the internet, you know, like anonymity. It just cannot provide that. It, it, it's not going to be conducive to people's repentance. And so even from that standpoint, it's it's fruitless, vain, barren activity. Sorry, that's that's a much longer rant than I was expecting, Andrew. But that's how I see some of the differences of the platforms working out. Returning to your earlier point, Matt, I think it is absolutely crucial to be able to detach ourselves from the medium psychologically and otherwise. And if we are not spending on a fairly regular basis time off the medium, and that should be throughout the day, it should be um, at certain points during the year. And more generally, if we're not doing that, we will not be able to disengage from it psychologically. I often return to Christ's saying in the Sermon on the Mount that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Part of the point there is not um, it is that if you want your heart to be somewhere, invest your time, your um, resources, your uh, attention, whatever it is, in that thing, because then you will find that that's where your heart is, um, because your heart tends to follow your investment, your investments of resources and time and attention. And the more that we've done that with Twitter, the more that we become people who care far too much. When you spend time off Twitter for a while, the one of the first things that starts to come to mind is how small and um, narrow, how um, marginal it is to much of the actual life of the church. And 
yet on the other hand, I think one of my concerns is I came from a background where I could never have these conversations in person um, beyond a certain point. I could talk about these things with my dad, but there just weren't people in my environment who would be having these sorts of theological conversations. And so having an opportunity to talk with people who are thinking about these issues seriously was a godsend for me. I wouldn't be here if it were not for places like that. And so if everything retreats into these private Discord and, and Slack channels, I think we've lost something very important. And so I want to see a more public theological conversation. And much of it is, for better or worse, taking place on Twitter. And so somehow I think some of us do need to be engaged within that realm for the good of um, the church, that these conversations do get spread out there. And we do have interaction with a broader group of people than just our peers. And I've found Twitter to be helpful on that front. The other thing is just disengaging, I don't think is enough. You have to be very positively engaged in alternative contexts. Because I see a lot of people on Twitter who I just think there's some gap or vacuum in their life that Twitter is filling. If they were just to disengage from Twitter, it would just become a more painful vacuum. They're not dealing with that psychological issue that's causing them to invest overmuch in their identities on Twitter. And so they just need to step back, find, some, find out where the issue is. Are they just not getting community in person? Actually try and get to meet people. And that's always been one of the reasons one of the reasons I've been involved online, because I want to meet new people. I've met over 300 people that I first met online in person. And it's something that I've always tried to do as a, a form of practice to get to know. Including us, know. I presume. Yes. Yeah, we'd written a book together. I'm more, I'm more interested in, person. do you keep a list? Like, is there a, is there a spreadsheet somewhere? I keep, I've kept a rough list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. And the answer is yes, he I've does been doing keep a list. This 20 years trying to meet people that I've encountered online. And it's been not just theological context, word games and other things like that, because I see the internet as a sort of scaffolding that can form real world connections and moving into those and really investing myself in those um, has been a way in which I've kept the internet in yeah. its place while still being engaged within it. And I think that if I didn't have those real-world connections, if I were just tweeting from a context where there was very little substance to my interactions with people offline, um, it would be very hard not to become overly psychologically invested. So I'd say people do need to spend that time off. They do need to disengage, but they also need to find somewhere else that they can engage. And then they'll find that their investment of identity on Twitter or in online discourse more generally, will take a different form. This, this is a weird way. This is this is a profound way to back into a, an intervention for me, Alistair. I kind of feel like he, he, you're you're really challenging me here. You know, that about the things that are missing in my life. I have so many jokes about everything that you just said, and but we're out of time, and so I'm not going to get them all in. Um, it's a it's a great word that I totally agree with. Um, I think it's exactly right. Uh, I, I'm intrigued by this conversation. And Alistair, you know, I, I kind of threw it to you first in the way that I asked the first question set you up for this. But as longtime listeners of the podcast know, uh, you are polymathic 
in your understanding of the world. You can discourse at length about a great many subjects. Uh, two subjects in particular, I think you are uh, especially uh, astute on. One is technology and the ways in which technologies have formed and deformed us. And and that's the, the discourse that we got at the outset of this show um, and throughout. The other, of course, is the Bible. And one interesting question within this whole issue that we don't have time to talk about is what biblical resources, if any, we have to think about anonymity. I wasn't persuaded by Patrick Miller's invocation of Genesis. It, you know, like I think there's more that needs to be done. We have one letter, uh, at least one letter in the New Testament that's unsigned, namely the the letter to the Hebrews, but doesn't quite count as anonymous or. Uh, whatever it is. Um, and of course, we also have the pseudepigrapha, and maybe there are resources within that uh, uh, body of literature that could help us. There you go, Andrew. I got it out. Um, might also think about the difference between Paul's personal presence and his presence in his letters. That's right. In that uh, First and Second Corinthians, especially. Um, so I think developing biblical resources for thinking about these questions is... Uh, something that we need to do, and it's uh, uh, ironic or perhaps bad of us that we started with the ethical questions first and now are leaving the biblical question unanswered. Uh, but there you have it. Um, guys, this has been a really fun conversation. Edifying for me, provocative. I appreciate both of your contrib contributions and your challenges to me along the way on these sorts of issues. Uh, and I think I I, uh, I will say this, for those of you who are listening, I think both Andrew and Alistair and Derek are exemplary in their uses of Twitter. I, like when I think about the number of people who have grown in my esteem, who have gone up in my esteem because of their use of social media, I think it's maybe four or five people and three of them are Alistair, Andrew, and Derek. Ross Douthat is certainly one uh, who manages to use the, the platform uh, in a way that just astounds me, given someone of his position and influence. Um, uh, but it's very hard for people to go up in my esteem for their use of social media, including, I will note, myself. I have gone down very far in my own esteem for my use of social media. So if you're looking for good models to... Uh, uh, follow. I think of these three guys as people who can uh, uh, be imitated uh, without um, without qualm. So there's my word. We're going to end on that. We're grateful to you, our listeners, for your time, attention, for your support for this show. Uh, looking forward to uh, reading the Mere Fidelity Book of the Month, Persuasion. Don't forget that you can get that at merefidelity.com. Uh, uh, the link to that also leximpress.com slash mere fidelity we'll be back in the weeks to come with other conversations about faith and how to navigate the world around us including the digital world around us until then though this has been mere fidelity